0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Making Conversations Easier, the podcast where we speak to people who inspire us to improve our communication skills in healthcare. If you've listened before, thank you so much. If this is your first time listening, this episode, like all our podcasts, features conversations with people about how to improve our communication skills when talking with patients, their loved ones, and our colleagues. I am your host, Winnie Ryan, and I work on the National Healthcare Communication Programme in Ireland.
1: And I'm Peter Gillen, an Associate Professor of Surgery at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, a retired general surgeon and a clinical advisor to this programme. This episode brings Michael West onto the show. Michael is a Senior Visiting Fellow at King's Fund London, Professor of Organisational Psychology at Lancaster University visiting professor at University College Dublin and Emeritus Professor at Aston University. He graduated from the University of Wales in 1973 and was awarded a PhD in 1977 for research on the psychology of meditation. He has authored, edited and co-edited 20 books and has published more than 200 articles on teamwork, innovation, leadership, and culture, particularly in healthcare. His latest book, Compassionate Leadership Sustaining Wisdom, Humanity and Presence in Health and Social Care, was published to critical acclaim in July 2021. Michael was appointed a CBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2020 for services to compassion and innovation in healthcare. Michael, thank you for agreeing to be here.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you.
0: Michael, you're very welcome to the show. In 2019, you worked with Peter and I on the National Healthcare Communication Programme to develop a teaching workshop for team based working in healthcare, and it's one of our most popular modules. Peter already gave a short bio about you, but in your own words, can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Well, thank you, Winnie, and um, thanks, Peter, for the very gracious and warm introduction. Um, I grew up in Wales. Uh, As you said, I did a doctorate. It was research into the psychology of meditation at the University of Wales, and that was just a fascinating time in my life, fascinating area of study. And then, after a number of little hops and skips and jumps, I began to do research as part of a Medical Research Council research unit in healthcare, and particularly looking at team working in healthcare back in the 1980s. And since then, all my work has been focused on how we develop cultures and leadership and teams in organizations, particularly in healthcare, that will enable us to achieve what we're seeking to achieve, and at the same time, ensure the well-being and effectiveness of the people who work in our teams and organizations. I now live in Sheffield, in in Yorkshire, in England, and um, I'm a new grandfather, which is just magical.
0: Congratulations, Michael. So Michael, In our module communicating with each other and promoting teamwork we discuss four components of team-based working and these are safety and trust having a common purpose on the team effective communication and shared leadership can you take us through each of these components please perhaps reflecting on what they mean why they are important and how we can use them in healthcare would that be okay
2: yeah so let me talk about psychological safety and trust in teams, first of all. And it's a really fundamental concept for us as humans. It, it's fundamental from you know, the moment of our birth that we, we, we want to feel safe. And that need to feel safe goes on throughout our lives, and particularly in workplaces. We want to work with others where we feel that they value, respect, and care for us, where we feel that we belong, where we feel we can speak up without fear of being ridiculed or put down or um, ignored, so that we feel we have a voice. And how we create the conditions for that to occur in teams, I think, is now much better understood. It's about, in our teams, making sure that we've got a shared vision of what our work is about, and and that we're clear about the goals of of our team, that in our teams, we're focused on learning and improving, rather than fear and blame, Mm. which just create a lack of safety, they create threat. And it's about ensuring that we have sufficient contact with each other on a regular basis, that we build trust, because we humans build trust through having contact with each other, And um, and not just sitting in meetings with long agendas, but through real, genuine human contact. And that we value diversity, diversity of professional backgrounds, diversity of opinion, diversity of demographic backgrounds, because that's the stuff of team working. And that we manage conflict also, the inevitable conflict that comes with different backgrounds, experiences, abilities, that we manage that in a positive constructive ethical transparent way and that we build an atmosphere of compassion in teams where we care for each other of always asking the question in teams how can how can I help you what can I do to help and also humility and when those conditions are in place then we create the conditions for psychological safety where people can speak up and where we can continue to focus on providing high quality continually improving and compassionate care for the people that we provide care for.
0: Thank you Michael. And so what's the impact then in healthcare of not having that psychological safety in our teams?
2: Well, it's a threat to patient safety because if I don't feel safe in my team and 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 yet I see something happening which might be a threat to patient safety uh, that might, you know, cause an error or th- that is likely to cause a patient distress, then if I don't feel safe, I'm much less likely to speak up. And Amy Edmondson's work at Harvard showed how in newly formed healthcare teams, the the teams initially with the highest numbers of errors were those that had the most positive supportive leadership. And that was a curious finding. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually what happened in those teams, the error rates came down very quickly, whereas in the other teams, without good supportive leadership that created a safe climate, what was happening was people weren't talking up about errors and concerns and near misses. Mm -hmm. So the consequence of not having psychologically safe teams is both threats to patient safety and quality of care, but also threats to the well-being of staff.
0: Okay, and thank you, Michael, for that. And are there practical things that, you know, team leaders who want to build psychological safety in their teams, are there practical things that they can do?
2: Well, one is, you know, the first is to ensure that um, the team has a really clear vision of its work. The second is to ensure that that's translated into four or five clear, agreed, challenging goals. The third is to always respond when things go wrong with the question, what can we learn from this rather than who is to blame? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's really important that team leaders bring people together on a regular basis to take time out to reflect, review. What are we trying to achieve? How are we going about it? What do we need to change? That creates that frequent contact and learning and innovation. And it's vital that the team leader values diversity values differences of opinion values different um, perspectives of different professional groups always bringing people in and saying well you've got a very different view on this that that's helpful let's explore what that means but also the team leader modeling humility and compassion and always asking the question how can i help because the team leader's behavior is a powerful if you like signal of how we should behave in our teams and so in those ways the team leader is critical in creating a feeling of safety.
0: Thank you Michael and I'm interested in that term humility, can you tell me a little bit more about that please?
2: Well it's the opposite I suppose of arrogance or narcissism that we sometimes see you know the The um, research on leadership shows us that one of the key traits of effective leaders is humility, people who have the humility. And this isn't about being, you know, obsequious or sycophantic or wheedling. It's the the humility to say, you know, give me feedback on how I'm doing as a leader Mm -hmm. and how can I improve the way that I lead the the humility to to say, you know, I don't know what to do here. Um, what do you all think we should do in this situation? Um, because that And that creates a climate within the team where every member of the team is contributing and feels empowered to contribute rather than leaders who are arrogant or narcissistic mm. who suppress the voices of those they work with. And that means we're not making best use of all of the knowledge and skills and abilities that are available to us in our teams.
0: Thank you for that, uh, Michael. And just moving on to, you mentioned, I I think, um, being clear on the goals of the team and the roles, and that comes under, as was, common purpose. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, please?
2: Well, as I said, I started studying healthcare teams back in the 1980s. We began looking at primary healthcare teams, and we've gathered data now from thousands of teams in healthcare in the United Kingdom and around the world, and The most important factor we found consistently, which predicts team effectiveness, is whether they have a shared common purpose or vision, if you like. Um, That's not just a kind of vague, abstract notion that we articulate once a year when we have our away day, but it is the kind of beacon that guides decision making and activities and ways of working day by day. But critically that that purpose is translated into four or five clear agreed challenging goals not 45 Four or five Um clear goals this is what we're seeking to achieve that they're agreed in the team they're not imposed and that they are challenging because the whole point of having goals is that they should be challenging you know if we want to get an Olympic gold medal, we don't set ourselves low targets. It's about really seeking to achieve to a high level. And, you know, given our work in healthcare is about promoting the health and happiness and well-being of people in our communities, then we should be setting challenging goals that can be achieved. And that common purpose, those clear goals are the most important determinant of effectiveness in healthcare teams. Because the only point of having a team is to achieve something that we can't achieve by working individually. And we make a mistake if we think that forming teams is, you know, you just bring a bunch of people together and then you've got a team. No, the starting point is, what is the task? What are the goals? And who do we need to work together to achieve those goals?
0: Okay. And what about the roles on the team then, Michael? How can we be how can we ensure the staff are clearer on the roles that, you know, the patient as a member of the team and the family knows what everybody's role is on the team as well?
2: So in any team, it's really vital to, to be clear about what my purpose is. You know, if I'm, if I'm in a team of, I don't know, seven or eight people, it's vital that I know what my purpose is and what my role is. And, it's also important that we continually continue to ensure that we understand the roles of each other person on the team. And one of the things that we know that effective teams do is they communicate to each team member continually what their roles are and how they're evolving. So you know the concept of role in teams comes originally from theater in the middle ages the roles we play in a drama
1: okay. and
2: and that's where the concept comes from it's a role and so good team working is about being clear about everybody's role as you would be for example in a stage play and it's the same in a healthcare team we're clear about what everyone's responsibility is we're also um clear about each other's responsibilities and those responsibilities evolve as the team evolves and continually improves how it's working and what it's doing then what it does is to communicate to team members how their roles should be evolving also and it's something that I think team members would benefit from having regular conversations about um, when they have huddles, away days, debriefs after action reviews, and so on.
0: Okay, and and Michael, do you have any um, do you have thoughts on flexibility in our roles?
2: Yeah, because in in your, it's an important question because we know that the most effective teams people back each other up. So you know when I see you're under pressure in your work and your role, then as a good team member, if I'm not completely stretched also i'll say you know winnie i can see you're under pressure how can i help you what can i do that would help you help you out so there's flexibility and also you know as you say because people are going to be absent at times with sickness or whatever then we have to be able to be flexible to step in to ensure that the whole that the team as a whole is functioning well
0: okay thank you very much for that michael So just moving on to talking about our third component, effective communication. I recently heard you use the phrase, listen with fascination. It's a lovely phrase. How can people do
2: that? It is a lovely phrase. It was coined by Nancy Klein, who has done an enormous amount of work on the art of communication and conversation. And I think breaking it down to what it really fundamentally means is important for all of us in life listening with fascination, I think requires that we in conversation with another person we attend to them and if you take that concept of attention down, I think it has two components. the first is attending means being present you know in the same way I attend a, a conference or a concert or whatever so it's being present with the other person that's a really powerful concept I think Winnie mm-hmm. you know being present with you here and now so I'm not I'm not kind of caught up in thinking about oh what should I say next or what what just happened a little while ago in that interaction I had with somebody else it's just simply relaxing back into being present with you and letting go of all of that other stuff so that I'm present with you And then giving my attention, the second bit of that concept of attention is that my cognitive processes, my emotional processes are focused on you, and that I'm then in a position where I can listen with fascination, there's nothing extraneous interfering with my being present and my listening, and that I can, if you like, be completely open to what you're saying to me and communicating to me, not only through your words, but through your emotions, through body posture, through facial um, configuration as well. I think it's a beautiful concept and really important for all of us to, to I, I suppose, regain the um, ability to be present with each other and to listen deeply to each other with, with respect and indeed with love.
0: And it can be sometimes not so easy, you know, to block out all those things that you were talking about, you know, like particularly in healthcare, so I've just had a difficult conversation with a patient or a family member. I need to be able to put that to one side before talking to my colleague or meeting my my next patient. and I suppose what we're touching on there is some people might call it mindfulness,
2: well, I think that um I, I think the danger is that we just make being present and listening with fascination another, you know, another challenge, another exercise we've got to learn. Actually, it's about letting go and just being here and now. And of course, if you've just had a really difficult situation, um, that's much easier said than done. I think another kind of parallel skill we have to learn is the skill of self-compassion, which is the skill of being present with ourselves and listening with fascination to ourselves. Mm -hmm. What am I feeling right now? I'm feeling upset about that conversation I just had. Mm. What do I need in this moment? I need to have some stillness or I need to get comfort from a colleague. You know, how can I get those needs met? And so part of being able to listen with fascination is also being self-compassionate and managing the difficult emotions we experience in our, in our work and indeed in our lives. And I think self-compassion is core to developing our ability to care for ourselves. After all, each of us is as deserving of, of love as every other human on the planet. Mm. So developing the skill of being self-compassionate as a way of being, and, and that I think enables us then to develop the skill of being present with others and listening with fascination rather than our ability to be present and listening being occluded or hidden by all of the stuff that's going on you know in our heads.
0: Yeah thank you Michael I think that concept of self-compassion is particularly important for people who work in healthcare you know they're they're very busy uh, tend to be understaffed and then working with patients who tend to be you know stressed they're worried they're vulnerable they're sick they're heightened emotions and it is important that we take time out to look after ourselves and look after each other yeah
2: and there are some you know there are some wonderful resources and wonderful examples um i don't know tara brach's book radical compassion is one good example kirsten neff has written various books in um the northwest of england foundation doctors are now being trained in compassionate leadership with self-compassion a core part of the program And interestingly, they say that when they first start the program, the uh, the area they find, you know, most um, or they think they're least interested in is self-compassion. But it proves to be the area they find most helpful in um, Berkshire Health in England. It's a mental health and learning disability trust. They've been retraining all their staff in compassionate leadership for the last five years. Ninety five percent of their staff have been through training and compassionate leadership and particularly self-compassion and they are the NHS organisation in mental health with the lowest levels of staff stress the highest levels of staff engagement and very high levels of care quality.
0: Yeah so there are benefits to looking after ourselves and and as you're saying leaders showing compassion towards their staff then staff are more likely to be able to um, be compassionate and be present with the people that they're caring
2: for. Yeah.
0: So thank you. Leaders,
2: leaders modeling self-compassion. We know encourage self-compassion and compassion amongst their staff and that radiates out to patients and service users.
0: Okay. Thank you, Michael. So just moving on to the last point, um, you talk about shared or collective leadership. What is that and why is it important in healthcare?
2: Well, I think one of the great paradoxes, one of the two great paradoxes in healthcare is that we have the largest and most skilled and motivated workforce in the whole of industry in healthcare, yet we largely manage them through command and control. And the other great paradox is we've got a sector focused on promoting health and well-being but we damage the health and well-being of a large proportion of that largest workforce in the process. But in relation to shared leadership, I think the challenge for us in transforming teams and organizations for the future is to move away from hierarchical command and control structures to more collective leadership so that we properly make use of and benefit from, the incredible knowledge and skills and abilities and equally importantly, the wonderful motivation of all of those who work in healthcare. And we don't do that through having extended hierarchies. The most effective organizations in the world, regardless of sector, generally have no more than three or four reporting levels. But in the typical hospital that I see in Ireland and in many other countries, reporting levels are in double figures. And for every reporting level you add, it's estimated you add about 10% to bureaucracy. So it's absurd. And I think team working is the means by which we can move towards more collective, less hierarchical, more horizontal, less vertical structures. So, what shared leadership means in teams, and by the way, we know from research internationally and across sectors that the most effective teams have shared leadership rather than Dominant command and control leadership, and that doesn't mean that there's some chaos of democracy. You know, if I'm having open heart surgery and I start to hemorrhage, I don't want the surgeon to say, "Well, let's you know have a little idea generation session here now to see what people think we should do." You know, I want I want I you know I want the the key person to take the decision, but I do want them also then to reflect after the operation: what went well, what didn't go so well, what can we learn from this, what can we change? So shared leadership is about everybody feeling they have leadership responsibility in the team. It's about leadership shifting to whoever has the most expertise in relation to the problem in hand. So if you're the leader of the team, but we're dealing with a task where Peter has the expertise then the leadership should seamlessly shift to Peter. Um, And and we know that in well-functioning teams, expertise and airtime are highly correlated. Expertise and airtime, and in other words, how much people listen to you are highly correlated in relation to specific tasks. So um, it's moving to a situation where everyone feels they have leadership responsibility. And after all, in healthcare, safety is everyone's responsibility. And quality improvement is everyone's responsibility. Because it's so hierarchical, then the contributions of everybody to quality improvement and safety are currently being suppressed. And so, shared collective leadership, building team working, building team based working, I think is key to how we transform our teams and organizations for the future in healthcare.
0: Thank you Michael. So you say quite rightly and it's the same here in Ireland um, that we have hierarchies and strong hierarchies in healthcare. Are there do you have one or two tips that you could share with our listeners about how to flatten those hierarchies?
2: I would love to see, you know, Brave, bold leaders, policy—you know—policy leads. Uh, people at the top of HSE or wherever get rid of some of these extended hierarchies and banding systems at a stroke. But I'm not optimistic that's going to happen quickly. I think the most powerful way that we can—we can shift the culture from vertical to horizontal is by building effective teams and communities of teams. So, you know, we know, for example, in the system in the National Health Service in England, 96% of staff say that they work in teams. And then we say, we ask them, do your, does your team have clear goals? And do you meet regularly to review your performance as a team? And then the figure drops to 40%. So there's a huge amount of work to be done to build effective team working. And yet we know that the more people who work in teams with clear goals and that meet regularly to review their performance in in an organization, in a healthcare organization or hospital, the better is care quality, patient satisfaction, staff retention and engagement, lower numbers of errors, better financial performance and significantly lower levels of avoidable patient mortality. So we need to build team working much more effectively Um, and you know the modules that you, you are offering I think are a really powerful way of doing that and also to recognize that team working is not just about what goes on in the team but it's how we work with other teams so one of the four or five goals of every team should be improving the effectiveness with which we work with other teams and departments within our organization and with you know with community groups and with the voluntary sector and with families as well. Of course. So um, I think one of the one of the shifts we need to make as well is to move away from this myopic focus on individuals in healthcare. Yeah. After all, it's teams of people who deliver healthcare, not individuals primarily. So why are we so focused on individual performance management reviews? Why not have team performance management reviews and departmental performance management reviews? Why aren't we training um leaders in team leadership we should be selecting people for team orientation as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole raft of ways in which we could begin to shift the culture. but you know one of the main things that leaders can do in teams, I always say the first skill you have to teach a team leader is shut up <laughs> okay shut up,
1: yeah. okay
2: um you know, look, we've got a problem here um, um we're not sure how to deal with this particular uh, quality challenge that we've got or patient safety challenge we've got i want to ask you what you all think but let me tell you what i think first well you've already lost as it lost it as a leader in terms of hearing from your team members what their real points of view are so it's about letting your team lead in the sense that you ask them for their ideas and what their thoughts are before you start pushing yours that's what great team leadership is is Enabling the collective voice of the team. I mean, and I'm talking from experience, Winnie. And I've worked with some great teams during my career, and I've learned over time that it, all it, you know, the best team leadership, in a way, is when you start to feel redundant as a as a team leader because the team is so effective, um, and you can, you know, your job is just to gently touch the tiller from time to time. It's to enable psychological safety good communication ensure clear goals and then sit back and enjoy watching a team perform brilliantly
0: yeah and all of these components thank you Michael they're all really dependent on each other if if I want shared collective leadership on the team that's really based on a foundation of psychological safety and just thinking about You know, our healthcare professionals, it's difficult for them in a way, isn't it? Because we're trained in university to be expert in our own area and, you know, to to have the answers when we're dealing with patients. When you become a team leader or working on a team, there's a little more work to do, isn't there? We're trained in our individual professions. We're not trained together um, to work together as a team. That's something we, we learn or don't learn on the job, I think
2: yeah you're right and and interestingly you know the research on training people to work in teams is very encouraging it shows that that we can teach those team working skills relatively easily and that it doesn't require high fidelity high cost training
1: Mm -hmm.
2: low fidelity low cost training works very very well and um there are lots of good examples of where that training is um, is being successful. The Athena OD organization, it's a charity in um, in United Kingdom, has been doing work in this area for about eighteen years. The Steps program in the United States and the modules that you're offering, um, and at University College Dublin, the co- the, the uh, co leadership work there is another example of the good training that can enable people to develop these skills.
0: Thank you very much, Michael. I know Peter has a few questions for you now, so I'll hand you over to Peter.
1: Uh, Well, Michael, I could listen to you all day long. Uh, It's a pleasure. pleasure. Uh, Actually, just, I was thinking there when you were talking about mindfulness and self-compassion, I I once had a a patient years ago that I operated on. She was very, she was an American lady and she had, um, big intra-abdominal abscess. And just as she was going to sleep, she asked to see me, and she said to me, when you're operating on me, she said, I want you and the team to be in a happy frame of mind. I don't want any negative thoughts, no talk about the economy, recession, or anything. And I'd never experienced this before, and I said, why do you want? I said because I know that I won't have any complications if you're all in the good mood when you're operating on me. So I, I just thought that, that what a wonderful example of mindfulness that was. Just as I was listening to you.
2: Yeah, I nominate this woman to be T shirt <laughs> <Yeah, absolutely.
1: laughs> um, Michael, I've heard you say that you worked underground in a mining pit in Wales when you were younger. That Must have been quite the experience. You said you learned a lot about teamwork at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more about
2: that? Yeah, well, I was coming to the end of the period of my doctoral research, and I'd run out of money, Peter. So, um, you know, South Wales—the only or you know, the big industry at that time was coal mining—and um, through a friend of a friend, uh, I managed to um, get a job working under underground as a labourer for. I was there for a year, and. The first couple of months, I was kind of I was pretty scared because it's a it's a it's a very dangerous environment underground. And there's a lot of huge trucks moving at speed with large amounts of coal and rock and ore in them. And um, it is a very dangerous environment. and uh, And then after that, I became fascinated. And what was particularly fascinating was that it was clear that the priority The core value of people working underground was each other's safety and well-being. It wasn't productivity, even though people's bonuses were based on that. And that it was your immediate team you you worked in which protected you. So people were constantly coaching each other on how to be safer and looking out for each other. And it really came home to me there. That it was the team you work in which is most powerful in your experience of work, your learning, your development, your safety, your happiness at work. And that really, I think, prompted my fascination with team working and, and I suppose alerted me to the reality of the fact that it's teams generally that deliver healthcare. And that as a species, we've been working in teams for hundreds of thousands of years. You know, we've got early archaeological evidence of people herding horses into canyons so that they could kill them and use them for food to feed the tribe. So we've been working in teams for thousands of years. The challenge is to get the basics of team working right in our organization so that we can achieve the outcomes for patients we want to achieve. Your example of this um, of this woman saying make sure you have a positive team environment is hugely perceptive because we know that positive supportive teams are much more effective in terms of productivity, in terms of innovation, in terms of effectiveness. Lovely. M-
1: Michael, moving on, we know in this country that many of our junior doctors have trained here in our universities and hospitals are leaving in their droves for countries like Australia, New Zealand and so on. And when you ask them why they're leaving, the number one answer is for a better work-life balance. What's your advice to managers and leaders in this country in particular who are trying to address that problem?
2: So I think in general, if you want to design a job at the beginning of somebody's career, which is a particularly important point, If you want to design a job at the beginning of their career that has all of the characteristics um, that you wouldn't want in order to meet their core needs at work, then junior doctors is it. I I was involved in um, uh, co-chairing an inquiry on behalf of the General Medical Council in United Kingdom into the health and well-being of doctors and trainees. Uh, About four years ago now. And we particularly focused, as the recent National Academy of Sciences report in uh, the United States has done, we particularly focused on what was causing stress and ill health among doctors. And it was clear that what we're failing to do is to meet the core needs of junior doctors and doctors generally. And there are three core needs that we have at work. The need, first, the need for autonomy and control. Second, the need for a feeling of belonging, and third, the the need for a feeling of competence. Let me break those down a little bit. So autonomy and control is about people, I would say it's three things. First, people feeling they have a voice and they have influence. I remember talking to one, one doctor in the course of our inquiry. He said, I'm 37 years old. I'm divorced. I have two kids and I was told off for running in the corridors yesterday. And people feel like they're cogs in the system. They're they don't have voice and influence and the second component of autonomy and control is working in cultures of justice and fairness rather than fear and blame many of the doctors we talked to particularly trainee doctors talked about working in impossible conditions without adequate numbers of staff terrified they'd make a mistake feeling out of their competence zone and afraid that they would be blamed punished, pilloried, even prosecuted for gross negligence, manslaughter. And so creating cultures of justice and learning and fairness is really important for autonomy and control and also the basic working conditions of people. And that's to do with, you know, can I take my rest break? Is there somewhere I can have a rest break? Can I get access to nutritious food on night shifts? Am I able to park my car close enough to where I work? Can I have to the point of your question, Peter, can I have some influence over work schedules and rotors? Because a critical issue is how do I balance my responsibilities as a carer, as a parent, with my work responsibilities? It causes huge stress for people. And the second is, and forgive me for the long answer, but it's a really important complex question. The second is the need for belonging. I need to feel valued and respected and cared for in my workplace. And that's particularly... Um, if you like, conferred by the teams we work in. So having those positive teams that your wonderful patient described is really important for people's sense of belonging, where people look out for each other, where they care for each other, where they're you, know, you create a positive, supportive environment. And the third is the need for a sense of competence. I want to do a good job for patients. And the, the key factor that we know prevents that is chronic work overload. It's the number one factor in staff stress, and from all the research I've seen, it's the number one reason why people quit their jobs is because you know they just they say I'm exhausted and I'm tired of being exhausted and I don't want to live like this. Um, and competence is also about having compassionate, supportive, you know, leadership, and about opportunities for continuing growth and development. So if we are to prevent this exodus of staff and junior doctors or trainee doctors, then we have to make sure that we are meeting their core needs through giving them voice and influence, creating just and fair cultures, getting working conditions right, using things like self-rostering, which are very, very effective, building teamwork, compassionate leadership, addressing issues of chronic excessive workload, good supervision, and then the importance of giving people opportunities for growth and development. And the last thing I'll say, Peter, is, you know, the issue of chronic work, work overload is a huge one. It's to do with having adequate staff. It's also to do with masses of unnecessary bureaucracy and masses of stuff in organizations that doesn't add value to patient care. But we know that if if you get these, some of these other things, right, like giving people voice, just and fair cultures, working conditions, rotors and schedules, team working, good supervision and so on. When you get more of that in place, it enables people to cope with heavy workloads. But if all of those things are wrong, it's a disaster. People leave.
1: Yeah, no, it, that's that's a fascinating insight into the world of, of people in healthcare at the moment, and nursing staff are finding the same thing as well. Yeah. People are leaving. And it's depressing, isn't it, to see people who begin life with such high levels of empathy and compassion have it, if you like, beaten out of them as the years go by. And um, and all those points that you just so eloquently made are so, so
2: important to- And, and you know, all. absolutely, Peter. And it doesn't need to be this way because we've got examples of organizations around the world and different places that are getting these things right. Um, you know, Northumbria Healthcare giving staff voice and influence, um, Mercy Care introducing just and fair cultures, they've eliminated 85% of disciplinaries and 95% of us suspensions, organizations introducing self-rostering, uh, organizations building, teamwork, the great work that's going on at University College Dublin and organisations addressing issues of excessive bureaucracy and workload east london foundation trust has eliminated 85% of clinical audit activities it regularly asks its staff what would you reduce or get rid of in your work so you know the, i i think the ins- it is depressing but the inspiration is comes from seeing the examples of where these things are done well and if one place can do can do this all of us can do it maybe just to ask you that over the past
1: couple of decades or so, senior managers in healthcare have been encouraging clinicians to become involved in management and leadership positions. Did, what's your opinion about that initiative? Do you think it's been successful?
2: I think it's a really important initiative because we've got some evidence of where clinicians are more involved in leadership, then the outcomes for patients and for doctors and nurses are better. But it's been such a hard road to achieve that, I think. So there are light spots of success, but many dark spots where it's been tried and it hasn't been successful. And, you know, my sense in Ireland is it has been variably um, successful. You know, some places have made good progress, but others have made slow or no progress at all. I, th- I think that um, it'll be successful when the culture is right in organizations so it's it's no good just kind of pushing clinicians into management in the hope that that will bring about change we have to give people i think the skills the intelligence and the support to enable them to be successful in leadership positions and of course that's about training most obviously but i think it's also about getting the culture right and culture is about how collectively we lead within our organization so that I think there are six things we need to have in place for this to work first there has to be a clear vision of what we're here for in this organization and that must be focused on high quality continually improving and compassionate care not targets not productivity not financial performance I mean all of those are important but they must be subordinate to, second place to, high quality care, continually improving compassionate care. Then second, we have to have clear goals at every level, from the executive team down to the portering team, to the breast cancer care team, to the radiographer team, four or five, as I said earlier in conversation, you know, with Winnie, it's about having those four or five goals, not 45 goals. So what we see in hospitals often is what we call the priority thickets. There are so many targets, priorities, key performance indicators that no one can see what's important anymore. There are so many priorities that no one can see what's important anymore. So clear goals and collecting at every level aligned to the vision and collecting data that is that is absolutely pertinent to those goals. Not all of this other data that's collected, which no one ever uses, and it just soaks up time. Third is cultures of support and compassion, which I've talked about quite a bit, but it's kind of fundamental to work in settings characterized by civility and respect, where people look, look out for each other, where we create cultures of compassion because we know that's what good patient care is about. It's also about cultures of equity and inclusion, where people are treated fairly and transparently and with justice. And cultures that are focused also on building team and team-based working is critical to creating the kind of conditions we need in our organizations. And I think when we create those kind of cultures through developing leadership of formal leaders and indeed everybody focused on vision, goals and performance, support and compassion, learning and innovation, equity and inclusion, and team and team-based working. When we create those conditions, then I think doctors, clinicians will thrive in leadership positions because they'll feel a sense of value alignment between their core purpose as clinicians and the core purpose of the organization
1: yeah, that, that's a, it. It's a really, really challenging area, but you've summarised it so well there, and you feel that it it should work. It just has to be given the framework, as you said, for it to succeed. Yeah, that that's a fabulous answer. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Michael. We're we're coming towards the end of our podcast now, and I have to say, you make it very easy to listen to you with fascination. I usually end our podcast by summarizing the main points that we've talked about so much this morning it's not going to be easy so I'll I'll do my best we started talking about uh, the four components of team-based healthcare you talked about psychological safety and creating a safe climate in the workplace so staff feel empowered So they can speak up about when they see something going wrong, but also so um, if they have an idea of a better, innovative way of doing something, that they feel empowered to say that to management. We talked about a common purpose, and that is having a clear vision and breaking this down, and I've taken that point, you've said it a few times, into four or five clear goals not 45, I will remember that as four or five clear goals that are clearly articulated and shared, I suppose, on an ongoing basis with with the team through briefings and so on. With regard to roles, to just bear in mind that they're constantly evolving, that we need to be flexible about them and we need to be very clear on what our own role is and also make sure that other members of the team know our role and that includes the patient and their loved ones, their family and carers and so on listening with fascination back to that phrase and you know you talked about emptying our minds which can be difficult in healthcare you know because we we're moving very quickly we're working in stressful environments some of our conversations can be very difficult it is important to take time you were saying I think to look after ourselves and and have some self-compassion and take time out if we need to before moving on to having that next conversation with with patients and then shared leadership where everyone believes they have a leadership role and this is important for you know patient safety but also I think I I liked what you said about team leaders I like that concept of humility so we don't need to have all the answers as leaders it's best if we I think you said shut up and listen (laughs) to the people around us and I liked your sailing analogy you know that you're just occasionally I think putting your hand on the tiller To make sure we're going uh, in the right direction. Peter talked to you about junior doctors and also about clinicians and management. So just ensuring that our staff feel they have a voice, uh, that they have some control, uh, they feel affiliated with the organization, I suppose, with other team members and that their role and status are recognized. Also, there's appreciation there, isn't there? You know, appreciation for the work that they do
2: yeah being valued respected and supported and appreciation is a key part of that I, I think it's you know chronic work overload is such an important part of the current environment for people working in healthcare and i think leaders are often reluctant to talk about it because they don't have solutions necessarily mm-hmm. um and that's partly why we're losing so many people why there's a mass exodus But it's not the role of leaders necessarily to have the solutions to problems, but it is their role to make sure that we're talking about the most difficult challenges we face. And part of listening with fascination is having the courage to talk about this issue of chronic work overload continually and to continually try to find ways of dealing with it because it's the biggest threat to the well-being of our staff and therefore the biggest threat to the quality of care we're able to provide for patients.
0: Thank you, Michael. So we end all our podcasts by asking our guests to name the communication skill or skills that they have found most useful. Mm -hmm. So since today's topic has been about team-based working in healthcare, perhaps we could ask you to leave us with your top tip or tips for communicating in teams.
2: Well, I've come to believe that where we are, you know, in healthcare, but where we are as a species is a critical point. And that what we desperately need is more compassion. We need more compassion in, in our healthcare organizations, in terms of cultures, we need more compassion in society. As we saw during the pandemic, incredible upwelling of compassion. We need more compassion in politics and there are some bright spots where this is beginning to happen. But in teens, compassion means four things. Um, as it does in any area really it's attending understanding empathizing and helping and attending means we talked about it being present and listening with fascination and that enables us then to understand the challenges the other person in the team is facing not through imposing our understanding but through having a dialogue and reflective listening and seeking to understand the other's um, challenges and then empathizing with them having the courage to empathize to feel their their pain they're overwhelmed maybe by work or a difficulty they've had with a patient and then to ask the question how can i help yeah. so compassion is those four components attending understanding empathizing and helping and i think that the more we can practice that in our teams the more effective our teams will be for the well-being of staff and we know that you know when people work in teams with clear goals and that have regular meetings and where people are compassionate towards each other, then staff stress is 50% lower. But all of this, as I said earlier, Winnie, in response to you know, one of your questions and our conversation, I think all of this begins with us having the courage to be self-compassionate. Because our ability to be compassionate to patients, to those we work with we now know from the research evidence is dependent on our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves. So it begins with having the intent to practice being self-compassionate, attending to ourselves, understanding the challenges we face, caring for ourselves, and then taking intelligent action to help ourselves so we can be the best we can be And stay close to the core values that give our lives meaning like wisdom and compassion and courage. And when we connect more deeply and authentically with ourselves in that way, it enables us to connect more deeply and authentically and courageously with the patients we provide care for. And also all of those we work with in our teams, indeed, all of those that we interact with in our lives. So it all begins with having the courage to be self-compassionate.
1: Well, thanks, Michael. Winnie and I really enjoyed talking with you, and I'm 100% sure that our listeners would be fascinated to listen to you as well. We touched you. a lot of important areas there in, in relation to improving our skills for communication and teams. If people wanted to reach out to you, how can they
2: get in touch? So my email address is m.a.west at lancaster.ac.uk, And the Twitter um, address is at West M 61. Lovely.
0: That's great, Michael. Thank you. And all that information will be in the show notes for our listeners. Well, Michael, it was great to chat. And thank you for taking the time to join us today.
2: It was a pleasure and a privilege for me to speak with you both. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Michael. Thanks, too, to our listeners for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Making Conversations Easier. Until next time, Sloane Gefoul.